short meditation for about 15-20 minutes um, and then I'll give a talk and then open it up for discussion. Okay. meditation posture, uh, one in which the spine is straight but not rigidly so, and the rest of the body is relaxed. So with the effort in keeping a straight spine is is combined, matched with the relaxation of the arms and legs, giving a first lesson in finding this um, balance between effort and relaxation, which is um, one of the keys to meditation practice. The To begin with, like to invite you to be mindful, be aware of the sensations in the physical body, just to um, come home, as it were, to sensations which are already present, not sensations we're creating, but giving a firm uh, foundation basis for Uh, mindfulness of the breath. So be um, aware of whatever sensations appear at the top of the head. There might be a sense of pressure, of warmth, of throbbing, of tingling, or nothing at all. Just simply be aware of however it feels in that part of your body and the sensations on either side of the head and the back of the head. And being aware of the sensations in the forehead. Just breathing in, breathing out, being aware of these various areas of the body as the breath enters and leaves. Sensations in the eyes, eyelids. Sensations in the cheeks. The two ears. The sensation in the nose, the breath coming in, coming out, sensation within the nostrils, 
at the tip of the nose. The sensations in the lips, lightly touching. And the teeth, lightly touching. Sensation of the tongue in the mouth. Sensation in the chin, the jaw. The sensation in the neck, the front, the sides, the back of the neck. The sensation in the shoulders. the arms, from the armpits downwards to the elbows, forearms, wrists, hands, fingers, sensation in the chest area. the stomach, now the sensation in the back, beginning at the base of the neck, the sensations down through the spine, on either side of the spine, down as far as the coccyx. The sensation of the bottom and the pressure on the seat. And the sensation in the legs, from the top of the thighs down to the knees, the calves, the shins, the ankles, feet, toes. Now be aware of sensation in the whole body without choosing any particular area of the body. Just being aware of the body as a whole, breathing in, breathing out, feeling the breath in the head, in the arms, the torso, in the legs almost as if the body was an oxygen balloon, expanding, deflating. The breath coming into the body, breath leaving the body, sustaining sense of knowing. It's bright, clear, sharp, knowing. 
knowing the in-breath, knowing the out-breath. The mind wanders without irritation, discouragement, but gently but firmly bring you back to the present moment. Developing this acquaintance, awareness of being in the present. Clear and awake, alert. In the moment the mind lets go of thoughts of the past and future, memories, expectations, immediate sense of well-being. Observe that, remember that sense of well-being which is waiting for us to let go of all that obscures it. If the mind is still very distracted, then can go back to passing the attention through the body in a very systematic, disciplined way. If the mind is settling down, more or less content with this effort to be mindful in the present moment, and next step is to choose a particular point, a particular area of the body in which to develop the mindfulness of breathing in a more subtle or profound way. This will tend to be at the tip of the nose, above the lips, but there is no right or wrong place to be aware of the breath, choose the area in which, the spot in which the breath is experienced most clearly, most comfortably, and establish attention at that spot. No need to follow the breath into the body or follow it out of the body, establishing attention like as if one was watching a door, as a doorkeeper. develop the sense of interest, enjoyment of this effort. Firm confidence in the value of this exercise, developing a sense of commitment to it. to help the mind 
develop this relationship with the breath, this intimacy with the breath, we may use a meditation word or mantra such as butto, a two-syllable word, first syllable on the in-breath, second syllable on the out-breath. So it could be butto, for instance. The second method is to count the breaths. On an in-breath, counting one. On an out-breath, one. In-breath, two. Out-breath, two. In-breath, three. Out-breath, three. In-breath, four. Out-breath, four. In-breath, five. Out-breath, five. And if we can count to five without losing track of the counting, in which case you have to go back to the beginning, then start a second count from one to six, and then one to seven, then one to eight, then one to nine, one to ten. One cycle of this breathing exercise is completed when we're able to count one to five, one to six, one to seven, one to eight, one to nine, and one to ten without getting distracted. So you make that a goal to work towards, it's a challenge. So it can simply be aware of the sensation of the breath, fostering feelings of interest, enjoyment, and commitment. Or you can use a meditation word such as butto, or use the counting method to develop the first stages of the mindfulness of breathing.
uh, Ajahn Chah, my teacher, used to tell a story about one of his disciples. And um, Ajahn Chah used to um, do these unexpected, uh, impromptu uh, inspections of the monastery, keep everyone on their toes. Sometimes in the middle of the night, he'd walk around to see whether you were sleeping or meditating. And he, um, one day, he was walking around the the kutis, the monks' cottages, and going up into some of them to see whether they were tidy and clean and so on. And one of the kutis had a um, had a hole in the roof, and the monk living in the kuti had moved his few possessions um, over into the dry corner of the kuti. And so Ajahn Chah asked him, you know, what, what are you doing? And he said, well, I've got a hole in my roof, so I'm, I'm just practicing letting go. I'm just uh, moving my stuff over to the, the dry part of the kuti. And so Ajahn Chah said, that's, that's the letting go of a water buffalo. That's not... Uh, um, the kind of letting go that I'm teaching you. And so he would often quote this um, occasion in explaining to us this important principle of, of letting go. And so I'd like to um, speak on this topic um, today myself. So one, one of the obvious um, myths understandings of this term is that letting go means passivity or not doing something. And um, Ajahn Chah would, would say, no, this is letting go within the activity. It's not letting, necessarily letting go of the activity. Um, that being said, there, there are, of course, certain activities that one does let go of in the means of in, in terms of refraining from. And so that is the, the, the realm of, of sila. So just as um, a beautiful painting or a well-written essay or novel um, is dependent on good editing and is as much a, a result of what's left out as what's uh, included um, similarly, our, our, our conduct um, uh, attains a certain quality and integrity by as, as much by what we don't do as what we do do. And the ability to uh, not do certain things, even though we want to do them, is a sign of maturity and is a particular uh, quality of human beings that um, animals uh, don't share, or at least in a, except in a very limited sense. And this ability to um, stand back from our instincts and our desires and to make value judgments and to say, oh, well, I'd really like to do this, it would be enjoyable, um, it would please me, but I won't do it, it wouldn't be fair, it wouldn't be kind, it wouldn't be right. This, um, we may say, unique quality is something that 
um, is employed as a tool in the Buddhist um, system of development or education system, if you will. So rather than seeing morality um, as being derived from a Godhead who lays down rules and regulations that one keeps um, through desire for eternal heaven or fear of eternal hell, then the Buddhist idea is that there are certain ways of living together in a group that are more intelligent than others, and certain ways that lead to those um, those things that we all cherish or hope for in our lives in the world. We want to live in families and communities in which we feel secure, stable, um, valued, in which we can both give and receive love and affection. And the question for us as social beings is, um, what steps can we take to try to create those kinds of families or communities or, or at least um, um, come as close to them as is, as is possible for us? And the Buddhist answer is that by... Uh, voluntarily agreeing to refrain from certain actions and certain speech, certain kinds of speech. Um, the emphasis is it has to be voluntary. Um, if a moral code is, is perceived to have been imposed from outside, then it won't fulfill the functions of sila, or Buddhist morality. Um, and it has to be seen as a, an education or a cultivation of, of good conduct um, rather than um, merely conforming to a rigid set of rules and regulations. So we make use of this quality to edit our, uh, our conduct and our behavior in a way that all those around us feel safe, um, in which we recognize that we're all subject to uh, negative emotions toxic emotions such as greed and hatred and jealousy and irritation that these emotions can arise in quite irrational ways and negative emotions can arise um, um, targeting people who we, we love and respect. So recognizing that we, we don't make any promises that we uh, don't expect ourselves to be free of those negative emotions, but we make a commitment not to express them externally. So we let go, in this sense, of certain kinds of actions and speech voluntarily in order to create the kind of, or to contribute to the creation of the kinds of families and communities that we'd like to live in, um, and also to, uh, re um, to reduce or to eliminate a sense of self-aversion um, self-hatred, guilt, um, and negative perceptions of oneself that are a product of acting and speaking unskillfully. Uh, the, um, the, the Buddha made great emphasis on the relationship between conduct and mental states, uh, how they influence each other significantly. And one of the um, things we can observe uh, quite easily is that if we act in in ways which we which we feel unkind or 
um, <clears throat> inappropriate, then uh, we don't want to be with ourselves very much. You don't want to be alone with yourself after you've acted in a very unskillful way. Some people try to escape themselves in such cases through uh, through drugs, alcohol, uh, or entertainments, or work, or any way in which to prevent us having to live with the truth of feelings that are a result of um, inappropriate, unkind action. So one of the values of taking care of the quality of your actions and speech is that you feel a friend to yourself. You like being with yourself, you like being alone, and the present moment, the present moment awareness is, is not um, intimidating or frightening or threatening in any way. But the um, with this kind of letting go as a basis, the, the other um, area in which we, um, sort of external area in which we, we let go is, is through acts of generosity and kindness and sharing, um, which is both an internal and external letting go. And so we, we, <clears throat> we share our wealth, we share um, our experience, anything that we have, we've, we've amassed, we've accumulated, which might be of any benefit to others. Um, we, we learn how to let go of our attachment, uh, let go of our selfishness and, and um, stinginess uh, through giving and sharing and experiencing the joy of giving. And um, gradually undermining um, this sense, this is mine, it's nobody else's, and, and the, um, the narrowing and, and um, uh, the, the negative effects of, of such, such thinking. The area in which letting go um, comes up a lot in daily life is with regards to work and putting forth effort, whether it's into our families, careers, whatever area of life in which we're active. What does it mean to, to let go in that sense? Well, the, um, the simile which uh, my teacher was very fond, fond of and used it many, many times um, is that of planting a tree in which um, you dig a hole, you plant the tree, you water the tree, you protect it from um, bugs and so on, um, <clears throat> and you um, perform all your duties and responsibilities towards that tree. You do all that you can do uh, to foster the growth of that tree. But um, you cannot take responsibility for how quickly that tree grows and whether the fruit that it bears is, is sweet or, sour or bitter. Um, these are um, out of your hands. They're a function of the soil, of the climate, of rainfall, of so many different things over which you have no control. And the the analogy here of course is that in any anything we put effort into in our lives we're we're never alone we're never working in a vacuum there are always 
um, other factors out of our control which are going to play a part. Um, sometimes uh, maybe particular people or institutions or political systems or economic um, factors, so many different um, things come to play, come to um, bear upon our efforts in life. And so the skill is to recognize um, in which areas um, we take responsibility and in which um, we let go. And in, in, from letting go here is letting go of expectations or demands. Um, expectations that because we put so much hard work into something, we gave, made so many sacrifices, we did something with such integrity and, and purity of heart that therefore we have a right to certain rewards which should be, uh, we feel commensurate with the quality and, and um, length of the effort that we, we put in. But when we, um, when we look at it in terms of the causes and conditions that are um, coming into effect here, we see that that um, effort of ours is just one strand, is just one element of this complex um, stream of causes and conditions, and that there is no um, necessity at all that things should result in the way that we would like them to. So we let go of that expectation, we let go of that demand that things should work out the way that we want them to work out. And so uh, we put forth effort with, um, with chanta, which is um, a Pali word meaning um, wholesome, intelligent desire. There are two kinds of desire. There's a desire that comes from ignorance and um, wrong ideas and assum mistaken assumptions. And there is the desire that comes through wisdom and understanding. So when we um, act with um, chanda, with wise, intelligent desire, our, our desire is on doing the best we can and on constantly developing and improving that, that best and taking joy in the work itself, in the creation, in the effort itself, um, rather than in the result of the effort. Nevertheless, um, we do need to have a goal in mind. It's not totally in the present moment with the, uh, with the effort. And the analogy here is of swimming, swimming in a lake towards an island in the middle of the lake. Now, the, the unwise person swimming towards the, uh, the island in the middle of the lake lifts his head up above the water and is looking intently on, on the island. And so obvious results, lifting the head up from the water means that the stroke um, is affected and starts to swim uh, much more slowly and it gets t more tired. Um, and secondly, it just seems as if um, progress is, is very slow, like the watched kettle never boils and you keep your eye on the goal all the time, it seems like you're not getting anywhere. So the wise swimmer um, notes where the, where the island is and then puts his effort, best effort into swimming in the best, most efficient way possible 
and then every now and again lifts his head up just to check whether he's still swimming in a straight line towards the island. And this is the analogy for, for effort in, in spiritual life. That one establishes a goal and then one puts one's best effort into the effort itself, the quality of the effort. Um, and then every now and again just pops your head up just to check the big picture, check to see uh, whether one is still aligned um, with the overall goal. The problem uh, one of the problems with uh, people encounter with meditation practice um, that I've that I've noticed is is the sort of application of, of, of worldly ideas to to meditation, seeing it as a kind of a difficult and um, uh, kind of unenjoyable um, chore, but which has a, like a wonderful goal at the end, which was something of peace or enlightenment or some kind of special experience. And, and so um, when meditators find they're struggling with um, agitation and sleepiness and dullness and kinds of negative thoughts, then they can very easily... Um, assume that uh, I'm not very good at this, this just doesn't work, or I'm doing it wrong, or maybe I need another technique or another teacher, and so on and so forth. Um, whereas, in fact, um, this is the, the idea. I mean, this, this is um, what you're supposed to be doing, if you like. It's not that if you don't realize this um, goal of peace or however you want to characterize that state that you're striving for, therefore you're wasting your time and everything which is not that state um, is a problem. Um, but the, uh, the idea behind um, meditation and its initial stages of developing mindfulness on an object, developing attention span, is that it reveals it illuminates the way that our minds work. And we um, take this as an opportunity to learn, uh, to study the nature of agitation, the nature of dullness, the nature of boredom, the nature of irritation, the nature of discouragement, all these, um, all these mental states that are churned up by the effort to sustain attention on an object um, are, um, are to be seen as objects of, of study, things to be known and understood um, rather than as things that are stopping us getting what we'd like to get from meditation. There's all these, um, these qualities of mind are already present they're not coming into existence because of meditation, but they're being revealed to, to us as mental states rather than as uh, experienced as who we are, part of our personality. So we're, um, we could say, almost say objectifying or at least giving our, uh, ourselves the opportunity to objectify these mental states. So we may say we're, we're learning to see thought as thought, 
to seeing feeling as feeling, to seeing perception as perception, rather than experiencing them as, as who we are. And we, we learn to see um, how these mental states arise, what conditions they're arising, what feeds them, um, what leads, them to, uh, leads to them um, passing away from the mind very um, easily or quickly, and what prevents them from uh, arising again in the future. So we're learning some very important things in how to deal with our experience of life. So if we, we're, putting, we're putting effort into being mindful of the breath, and the mind wanders off, you bring it back, um, and then you start to feel irritated, um, and start to force it, um, then that's probably an indication that that's, that's how you uh, um, approach problems in your daily life. And if you feel discouraged very easily because you can't meditate on the breath, it probably means that uh, you're someone who tends to get discouraged with other challenges in life. So it, it's a very honest um, uh, appreciation of you know the way our minds work, but it, this isn't you know, the same time like therapy or... Um, uh, it, it's, it's seeing these things as habits, as accumulated um, energies which are not inherent in the mind. They're, they're not part of the mind itself. Just things that we've learned to do, learned to think, learned to perceive, and which we can unlearn if we're willing to put the time and the effort into, um, into that um, practice. So we, when, when we meditate, you know, we start off a lot of agitation usually, and um, nobody wants, nobody likes to be agitated. I don't think. But um, the point I like to make here is that that we shouldn't assume that the answer to mental agitation is always in application of a particular meditation technique that um, mental agitation is uh, often an indicator of an imbalance in our daily life. Just as physical pain is an indication uh, of some physical problem, and although nobody enjoys, um, obviously, um, to feel, experience physical pain, uh, we, we generally understand that it, all in all it's a good thing because it alerts us to problems which need to be dealt with in the physical body. And mental agitation, uh, if it's uh, a chronic problem uh, which shows no signs of um, being reduced by meditation, is often a good indication that we need to look at our, our daily life and to um, give more attention to uh, when a Buddhist tradition is called sense restraint, um, it means a certain um, amount of um, reduction of the stimulus um, that we experience day by day. These days, uh, we're using brains which you know evolved to their present state very long time ago, and which were not designed to have to deal with the amount of information that they receive these days. So. Uh, this sort of information 
overload is um, is not so surprising. So it's important in daily life to give some some thought to just how much information uh, we we should be we need to be absorbing, um, and in areas in which we can simplify our lives and simplify the the workings of the brain by reducing uh, the amount of stuff in it um, is a very useful, important adjunct to um, meditation practice. The um, But often a lot of the things that go through our mind are not sort of bad or um, unwholesome in, in any great sense, um, but they're just noisy and um, they take a lot of energy and they accustom the mind to a certain level of activity um, to the extent that it becomes very similar to an addiction, like a drug addiction. And so meditating is, you know, to begin with, it's a bit sort of like cold turkey. You know, you're just experiencing withdrawal from the usual um, intensity of um, mental experience, which has become so normal um, that, you know, it's just take it for granted. So it's a real challenge um, to the mind, but one which, um, you know, can be, uh, can lead to very... Um, positive results. So all that's needed really is kind of application and uh, continuity of practice. Again, there's a classic um, simile here is of, of the caveman with the two sticks rubbing them together to, to get fire and he rubs them and then after a while he starts to get tired and just thinks, I'll just put them down for a few minutes and have a rest and then carry on a bit later. Um, and then and picks them up again and until it gets tired and puts them down again, does this a number of times and concludes that um, you can't really get fire from two sticks. You've tried it many times and it doesn't really work. It's probably just some kind of superstitious belief. Um, obvious uh, fallacy <laughs> there is that um, this particular process really requires a continuity of effort which hasn't been applied. Every time you put the sticks down, um, they cool down, and you're starting from scratch. You're not carrying on as you thought you were. And meditation is is, is like that. It's it's really important to keep doing it and keep applying yourself to it. But meditation practice in itself um, really only becomes transformative when the rest of our life is in sync with it, and there's a general approach to life of interest in learning from experience, developing this ability to observe and to, um, to be uh, present to our experience. And so one of the values of meditation is, is learning to do something which has no immediate result. Um, so usually, you know, in the world we're doing, we're doing this, so when we've done this, we can do that, and then we can do that afterwards. And there's, there's always this uh, very goal-oriented activity in one way or another, except when the mind goes to the other end of the pendulum and just wants to um, let go in a very heedless way. So in meditation, uh, we're learning how to put effort without any guarantee of any tangible result, at least in the new, near future, 
and, and to learn how to enjoy that and to um, be um, skillful enough to enjoy effort in something that we find meaningful and useful. And so we're, we're learning um, how to see between um, mental states uh, as we're more mindful gaps between thoughts and perceptions start to appear. And so they, rather than being this continual stream of, of thoughts and feelings and emotions, now it's, there's like it's a, a drip, drip, drip. There, there are gaps. And <clears throat> at the beginning it's just as an occasional kind of respite or occasional rest between uh, thoughts and memories and so on. And then as the, um, the intervals increase, uh, then they start to become more prominent than the mental activity. So now you, you have this sense of something arising out of silence and passing away into it. And, and that's a significant change in the way you experience your mental life now. And the movement is one in which um, the focus moves away from the content of experience to process. So, so a lot of our suffering is because we, we give so much importance to the content of our thoughts and simply switching um, to an awareness of the process, the, the fact that it is um, a mental event, something which has a beginning and has an end, that very simple but um, um, quite momentous uh, flip um, is um, is something that can only really be experienced um, consistently and, and in, a, in a way that leads to transformation <coughs> through uh, meditation practice. In daily life, um, what we're we're trying to do is to sustain this kind of continuity of awareness, and there are many. Um, techniques and, and methods to do that, but I think one for most of you, I, I hope uh, there don't tend to be too many great crises on a daily basis. Um, but there is just a steadily accumulation of uh, of tension um, through throughout the day. So at the end of the day, I tend to feel very kind of tired and worn out and fed up. Um, but if you can puncture that steady accumulation. Um, every you know, on a regular basis, it doesn't build up, <clears throat> and you can uh, maintain a sense of uh, freshness um, throughout the day. So that might that can be achieved in very very kind of simple ways. One is um, in those times when you don't have to um, be engaged in anything um, at that particular moment. Say walking from one room to another room, walking upstairs, walking downstairs, or walking from a building to a car, um, then to consciously um, apply yourself to um, meditating on the breath or on a meditation object just for those very short periods of 30 seconds, one minute, two minutes, three minutes, um, and just regrounding yourself in the present moment, just letting go of that that tension in the mind. Um, another very simple and uh, effective means is um, to take three breaths before you pick up your telephone. 
every time you hear it, you don't have to pick it up immediately. You just breathe in, breathe out three times. It's very simple, but it uh, helps you to be more mindful while you're speaking. But again, it just punctures that kind of sense of being carried along by this kind of wild, um, restless um, stream of energy all around you. So I have to carve out this little spaces of, of silence and stillness, even if they're for a, a very short um, period of time, sitting in front of a computer screen. Um, when you get a bit fed up and tired, instead of um, just surfing the web, just close your eyes and watch your breath for a minute, two minutes, count your breaths. Just come back to, to yourself, just... Um, experience how, how pleasant it is just uh, simply breathing in and breathing out, being a, a human animal, sitting in the present moment with nothing to think about. Um, it, it's something that's not mystical and not, it's not difficult, um, at least to, to try to do, but it, it can have a, a real, really important and noticeable effect on the quality of your life. So the idea is that when you come to meditate, there's a sense of readiness and that um, you haven't put down the sticks, as it were, during the day, but you're, you are carrying on. You might have just only been sort of maintaining um, the, uh, the heat already um, generated, um, but you haven't allowed it to dissipate. And this, um, this effort is something which, which um, is, is fulfilling in itself, the sense of... Um, creating uh, this conventional self as someone who's putting effort into their life, into the quality of their life day by day. So if we're looking for you know, often results in our working life and relationships, or as you know, sometimes uh, difficult to see and can be discouraging on that account, but um, if we look back on a day in which we, we put effort into protecting the mind from negative emotions, from dealing wisely and skillfully uh, with negative emotions that do arise. And we've brought into the mind some positive emotion and we've taken care and, and nurtured positive emotions that are there already, which is called the four right efforts. Then there's a sense, yeah, we're on the path here. You know, we may not be speeding along, but we're, we're basically there. We're, in the, uh, we're on the path. And... <clears throat> Noticed, um, yeah, I think it's 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 normal and, and admirable in many ways that um, as we we follow uh, this spiritual path, that we're very wary about becoming um, puffed up or proud in any way, and and humility, humbleness is you know is a, a virtue which is forms a part of every religious tradition, but but. Um, Humbleness, humility can also uh, be an inverted kind of pride, and um, it can become a you know identity and a self and a kind of a rigid kind of person. But if we really start to um, look very closely, observe the way that negative and positive emotions arise in the mind then we can see uh, then something else happens. Um, and my analogy for this is if you have a garden you know, and, you, um, and you grow some flowers or some vegetables or whatever, 
And he put a lot of work into, um, into cultivating this garden. And then when the time is ripe, the, the, the flowers bloom and they look very beautiful. And you, and you just have a great sense of joy and, and appreciation, um, of, uh, at seeing these flowers. And, and it's not in any way, a, um, you know, an indulgence or a, you know, a, um, a defilement of the mind in any way. And when we understand how virtues and positive qualities arise in the mind as the result of a systematic effort through time to cultivate them in the correct way, then when they do start to arise in the mind and we see them, we, we can appreciate these good without any sense of being puffed up and proud, look at me, I'm so special, I'm so spiritual, but seeing just the way that we would look at flower, beautiful flowers in the garden. And it, and it is tough, it is difficult for everyone um, to be developing spiritually. Um, even in a monastery, it's difficult enough in a monastery, let alone in the world. So I think that um, sometimes we, uh, you can miss out on a very accessible and legitimate source of joy and, and, and pride in seeing these, these small incremental um, um, beautiful um, changes taking place within you. You know, that it's not something to fear, but, but when you see just this spontaneous arising of, of kindness and goodness um, and, <clears throat> and restraint and sensitivity and so on, and, and not seeing this, this is who I am, I'm special, but you see these as flowers that are growing because you followed um, the Buddha's path, then there's a sense of gratitude to the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha, um, and there's a sense, oh, this, this is so, so wonderful, you know, that uh, these things are growing in, in my garden, as it were. So the simple fact is that we, we just cannot live without some sense of happiness. And we have to be, uh, where, where do we really look for our pleasure? Now, we might have some very high-minded ideals about it, where we think we should look for happiness and pleasure. We have to be very honest where we do. And, and if we're not finding joy and happiness and pleasure in spiritual life, then we'll, we'll find it somewhere else. Um, when the mind becomes distracted in meditation practice, then often we're all thinking about this again or worrying about that again. And... Um, our, our analysis uh, tends to focus on the content of the thought or the worry that is um, occupying the mind. What we also need to look at is the emotional tone of the distraction because that may often be more telling than the content itself. Often it's just this sense of that sort of uh, cozy little little pleasure, you know, that that comes from a a favourite thought or a favourite worry or a favourite concern, and and that I think that um, you know part of the essential character of, of this sense of self or, or some people call ego is this cozy sense of familiarity 
you know, it's almost better the devil you know than the devil you don't. It's just something that's, um, you, you just feel you can just sort of ease back in something which is familiar. And, <clears throat> and so that, that sense of uh, just a, a kind of mild pleasure that comes from mental distraction in meditation is the story. You know, as much as, you know, the story or the, the content of what you're thinking about. And so to recognize that um, helps to prevent it. But what is uh, perhaps most important is to cultivate this sense of appreciation and enjoyment and commitment to the meditation itself. Um, again, to observe and to remember and to recollect just how good it feels um, when the mind is without distractions. Um, the sense of <clears throat> clarity and, and, and peace of the mind is, is such a sublime feeling, even if it's just for a flash, just for a moment, um, and, to, and to recognize that that is something which is um, available to us through, through this practice and a sense of... Um, of joy and being able to do this in the first place, of being a, of having this contact with with such a teaching, having met this um, wonderful means of cultivation, and having the opportunity to apply it. So there are various kinds of reflections that you can apply, but all with the idea of, of bringing up the sense of satisfaction and contentment with meditation object. So. If you can cultivate this uh, joy and, and contentment with the meditation process, independently of the present um, experience of um, of clarity or lack of clarity, but just this overall sense of this is such a worthwhile thing to do. This is so. Um, this is s- such an important part of my life. Now that in itself. Um, mean helps you to uh, let go of this uh, move out of the present moment into um, the realms of imagination and memory. <clears throat> because this in the end is what it is. The past, all the things that have happened in the past, whether it's in this life or previous lives, uh, right now uh, what remains is memory. And the future, whether it's a future that we look forward to uh, with trepidation and fear and anxiety or with excitement and anticipation, um, all those future scenarios are just present thought, present imagination. So being uh, aware of um, memory as memory is uh, an understanding of the past. And being aware of thought as thought and encompasses uh, the future. So past and future all meet in the present moment. Now, um, present moment awareness um, is not you know, the end in itself. It's not the goal. Be, be here now is not the goal of meditation, um, but it's um, a necessary condition for the arising of wisdom. Um, because this is where the four noble truths are to be known in the, four, in the present moment. 
so if we, uh, I, you know, as I often talk about Buddhism as being an education system, and I say the present moment is the classroom. This is where you learn what you need to learn. Um, and until you can be in the present moment um, consistently um, and uh, over a long period of time, um, then you're never really able to uh, penetrate these profound truths, never to understand what letting go might be. Ultimately, letting go is, is letting go of the sense of me and mine. Um, and through this uh, bright, clear, sharp, precise, um, powerful presence of mind, you begin to see that um, that sense of me and mine is something that we add on to experience. It, it's not um, part of experience itself. Um, the sense of me and mine is very strong um, when, um, when the mind is very clouded and affected by emotion. The clearer, the brighter the mind is, uh, the less the sense of me and mine. When the, the mind is in a state of uh, samadhi, then there is no sense of me and mine. So me and mind is not a, a, like a fixed um, aspect of experience. Um, it's something which arises and passes away dependent on other things outside of itself. So if, if uh, but this is not an insight which uh, you know, has to wait for a very refined level of, of meditation. Um, if you have developed some, some level of, of mindfulness, uh, you will have had that experience of just suddenly something pops up into the mind, just something appears in the mind, something occurs to the mind or dawns in the mind without any sense of volition or that there is someone who is thinking that or is making that happen. It's something that arises and then if the mindfulness is very good, the knowing of it arises simultaneously. If the mindfulness is not so good, then it arises and then the mindfulness catches up with it afterwards. But the... <coughs> But the sense that things are just happening by themselves without some orchestrator, without someone standing behind experience and making it happen um, is one uh, of the central insights of, of Buddhist meditation uh, practice. Um, I, um, speaking with a... Um, with a with a Jesuit um, academic some time ago, and uh, I'd been giving a talk on uh, Buddhist concept of of happiness and the different levels of happiness, um, the different um, defining in terms of the conditions uh, upon which it's based. The basic idea being that um, the more conditions there are for a, uh, for a certain kind of happiness, then um, the coarser it is and the more refined and, uh, kinds of happiness um, are dependent on fewer and fewer things outside of itself. And then the happiness of Nibbana is one which is completely unconditioned. So um, his, his view was that um, he still felt that there was a significant gap between the highest kind of conditioned happiness and the, and the unconditioned happiness. 
Um, and I, although he didn't mention it, I understood him to to feel that this was where grace, the grace of God, comes in, which which bridges this gap. Um, so my my idea is that um, the an analogy would be that of of water, and that that um, at least. Um, superficially would see huge difference and an unbridgeable difference between water and steam or water and ice um, if we didn't know that those three things are, are transformations of, of the same element uh, we, we, we wouldn't necessarily think that they were um, very obviously one and the same thing and, and um, so my view is the difference between the unconditioned, uh, the conditioned having unconditioned, it's a natural development. When water reaches 100 degrees centigrade, then there's no, some, there's not somebody has to make it. There has to be some external force that transforms water into steam. Um, but water becomes steam when it reaches that level. It's, a, it's just a natural process. So in Buddhism, we're, we're not looking at um, grace or some external supernatural power, but we're looking at things as being the function of causes and conditions, and we have a belief that human beings uh, are at least potentially intelligent enough to be able to distinguish causes and conditions of um, progress and regress um, and to promote the conditions for progress and to inhibit or, re- or eliminate the conditions for regress. So this is not some kind of, um, to say, a kind of a, a mystical... Um, strange, exotic. Uh, it's just applying same kind of principles you apply every day in your daily life, into your working life, and uh, into your internal life. And not seeing that why there should be um, any great difference. Um, if you have a problem with your car or your problem in your working life, say, what is this problem? What's the extent of the problem? What are the causes of the problem? What do we need to do about it? What can we do about it? What do we do first? What do we do? What can we leave later? What are our resources? This kind of thinking is just absolutely normal, natural to anyone in their, in their external life. But why do we never think to apply, or very rarely think to apply these same principles to our external, internal problems? So it's not it's not so different. Um, simply that we've never um, performed you know, performed even the most basic kind of mental hygiene or developed any kind of internal discipline um, or really uh, applied ourselves systematically enough to developing this this tool um, of human mind. It was also, we can probably think quite well in, in particular areas in which we've studied or in which we, we feel comfortable. Um, but the, that quality and of, of thinking tends to be very circumscribed. And um, we tend to have um, big um, black areas in which we um, revert to um, magical thinking or no thinking at all. So the Buddhist idea is what we're trying to do is to um, develop our minds in such a way as that when it is appropriate, necessary to use the thinking mind, then we can use it and think about what we want to think about in an intelligent and penetrative way. But when it's not necessary, 
to think, then we don't have to think. Um, and one of the, of course, one of the traps or one of the um, biggest obstacles for people who use their their brain a lot or their thinking mind a lot and are successful in life because of the, uh, their thinking ability is to identify with it and to consider it me and mine. So the idea of meditating in such a way as to let go of thinking um, can be particularly threatening because, uh, well, if there's no thinking, then who, would, who am I? Who would be left? You know, if you think that uh, I'm pr- you know, all that I'm most proud of in my life is a function of my thinking, um, then it's it's quite uh, you know a challenge to to consider following a path in which we're letting go of that thinking. But the um, the comfort is, of course, is you're not being asked to anesthetize um, your uh, critical faculty, uh, simply to to discipline it and to use it in those areas where it should be used, rather than allowing it to spill over into areas of life in, in which it is more harmful than useful. And, and also um, allowing us to experience the, the joy and the, uh, the openness of a mind that doesn't have to think. It's not um, ne- neurotically um, conditioned to find something uh, to think about all the time. So the uh, learn, knowing how to think when it's good idea to think and being able not to think when it's not necessary to think and to uh, experience the joy of creativity and and uh, logical thought, scientific thought, but also the joy of, of peace and stillness and tranquility. These two are not mutually exclusive. You don't have to make a choice one or the other in your life. Um, and in fact, uh, in, ultimately, they, they nurture each other. When you can cut all the junk out of your out of your thinking mind, uh, then you open up areas for more useful and and uh, um, creative um, thinking than were were there uh, to begin with. So we're letting go of, of this attachment to thought, attachment to memory, attachment to perceptions, attachment, this is how it is, it is this way because I think it is, because I feel like this, and not taking how we feel about things, how we think about things, our ideas about things, our uh, views, our philosophies as being ultimate, but seeing them as, as merely that, we're all... We've all got ideas, we've all got views, we've all got opinions, we've got things we like, we've got things we dislike. That's a completely normal, natural part of life. But the idea is that we just don't take them quite so seriously anymore. We say, yes, it's just that. It's, it, it's, I have this sense of like, I really enjoy this, or I, I really don't like that. That's all right. But, you know, it's just that. It's just, it's just a thought. It's just a feeling. It's a, something conditioned. It might have been something that happened when you were a boy or a girl or it might have been uh, something from a past. It's, it's irrelevant, really. It's, just, it's a feeling that arises. But knowing it and not allowing our mind to be um, conditioned by it, uh, but simply to see it as part of the mental weather. So letting go of attachment to things doesn't necessarily mean um, that those things are not there anymore. The things that do disappear are the negative, the, the toxic mental states because 
all the toxic mental states are dependent on uh, a wrong perception, a mistaken, um, distorted perception of things. So the clear, more clearly you see things, then uh, the more those negative mental perceptions and so on will disappear. But positive sort of idiosyncratic likes, dislikes, um, affinities and so on, these, these things are relatively unaffected. Um, and even uh, fully enlightened arahants still uh, experience these kind of, they have sort of favorite foods and um, some of them chew betel nut, things like that. So it's not, um, we just become this kind of blank slate. And in fact, Ajahn Chah used to say, you look at a, if you were to a group of enlightened beings, it's like a, a group of different birds of different species, you know, they're all obviously birds, but somehow, you know, some are white and some are brown, some are many-colored, some have very beautiful voices, some very uh, not-so-beautiful voices. Um, their only similarity is that they're all birds, and uh, he said it's the same way with um, enlightened beings. So that's the um, talk I'd like to share with you today. Thank you. Yeah. you Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I'm just trying to sort of mentally flick through the. I mean, in the in the Satipatthana Sutta, you know, the mind, which is mindfulness, is not attached to anything in the world. So, yeah, maybe it just doesn't come up as a sort of particular category, but it's sort of here and there throughout. But uh, you know, in the teachings of all those people who've penetrated to the heart of the Dhamma, it's something that they talk about a lot, isn't it? So, yeah. What you were saying about the in your daily life, mm. when you find the places to find times to breathe when the phone rings or mm. something. When I worked in a jazz club mm. with live jazz music, and uh, I was a manager. I was only like twenty-two, mm. and it was, it was too much for me. I was running around like an idiot. Mm. Uh, this is before I was a monk. Yeah, I'm glad you weren't doing that as a young monk. Yes, okay. Yes, yes. And we used to sell beer by the jug. Yeah. And that was my time, was running around. I just couldn't, couldn't keep any idea of meditation. Yeah. And then when we pour the beer as a jug, it would take about eight seconds. Mm-hmm. And I just have eight seconds just to stop <laughs> and be still and then carry on with the work. Yeah. But at the end of the night, that gave me a sense that I hadn't just been working. Yeah. There's been something else going on, some kind of meditation or awareness going on at the same time. Yeah. So that really helped me. Take the time. Yeah, I think everyone, everyone's got you know a different situation, but you can you know, say even like in a jazz club, pouring beer, you know, you can still find short just eight seconds with a couple of breaths. It make, can make a difference or so. You know. But um, I, I think I've said 
one of these groups before, my generation, we all felt that the Nobel Peace Prize just became a joke um, when Kissinger was uh, received it. So that's a long time ago now. But I, um, I've always said that I, I think the person who should receive the Nobel Peace Prize, and I, I would personally, if I, I could give a Nobel Peace Prize, I'd give it to the man who came up with the idea of putting timers on traffic lights. You know, tell you... <laughs> It's such an absolutely brilliant idea. And if you were to um, consider how much tension has been released through motorists all over the world, thousands, millions and millions, just being able to relax because they know how much longer they've got to go before. They say, oh, come on, come on. Why is it always red, you know? Um, I think it's enough to absolutely qualify that person for a Nobel Peace Prize. but for all of you, you know, this is when you get to a red light, you know exactly how, how long. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be looking left and right. You can just be watching your breath for 20 seconds or 30 or even 70 seconds or 80 seconds or whatever. So that's another uh, good time to meditate. Yeah. And, uh. uh, does anybody have a, a question or a comment? Well, Anna, you Asking, when you do meditation and you experience the disappearance of the breath, yeah. what do you do next? Well, um, the the um, the knowing that there is no breath—that's yeah. still there. So it's not you're not meditating for the breath; you're meditating to cultivate the sense of knowing. Okay, that that's that's what you want in meditation. So the, that we use the breath as a vehicle to to create this familiarity with and the ability to be the knowing in the present moment. So when there's a breath, a coarse breath, you know that the breath is coarse. When the breath becomes more subtle, then you know that the breath is uh, subtle. When there's no breath, you know that there's no breath. Um, yeah. Well, then there's something more than just knowing if it's distracting, isn't it? No, Yeah, well, what happens is the mind becomes very still to the extent that you may not have any uh, perception of the breath or of the physical body, but that's um, a conditioned state. And then after a while, then there start to be perceptions of the breath again or of the body again, um, but the mistake is to feel that something wrong or that the med- that's the end of the meditation, but it's the next stage of the meditation because the, the period of stillness is, is the one in which the mind becomes very powerful um, and that's the value of it. When it comes out of that state, then it's able to develop the insight into impermanence and dukkha and not-self. So when the mind comes out of that state, just be present and just to know the arising and passing away of whatever. It might be a feeling or a thought or a perception or whatever. So we're moving from the focus on one particular object, the breath, to the knowing of whatever arises without choice in the present moment. So the focus is now on impermanence or not-self. 
But um, many meditators, when they've been through the very stillness, they come out, they think, oh, I've, that's the end, you know, I've, I've lost it. But no, it's just the next stage, it's the next... Um, There's two different things. Chan, Yan, two different things. I mean, uh, you sense of nausea or your, your abdomen. Well, it, you know, you don't have to um, give it names. You know, it's just be with the knowing. Um, No, you don't need to be creating anything. You you want to be knowing what's happening, what's going on. And, you know, afterwards you come out of that state after an end of meditation, you might review it and you say, oh, that was maybe jhana or that was... But that you don't want to be thinking in those terms um, during the meditation or thinking, is this jhana or is it this and that? Or all you want to need is, is that clarity uh, and precision of knowing in the present moment. So you could say, oh, if you're knowing and there's no breath and there's no, and there's no body and there's just stillness and brightness, and yeah, you could say that's jhana state. Um, but it's not necessary to you know, be giving it these titles at the time or even to be saying, this is samatha, this is vipassana. Well, then you're, you know, that's what they say, it's like adding legs onto a snake. You know, it's you know, not necessary to, to, to think about those things. You know, that, that's your, you've lost your mindfulness. Then, then there's, there's desire, there's doubt, there's all, these are hindrances that have come into the mind. So uh, to see, recognize those kinds of thinking as hindrances and to be protecting the knowing and not allowing those things to take over the mind. Um, but the moment you start thinking, I want this kind of experience, I don't want that kind of experience, and how can I get this experience back again, then, then you, you've, lost the, you've lost the track, you've lost the path. But at the same time, you, know, you should be observing throughout the day those things that help you to sustain that sense of knowing and those things that make it very difficult to, to sustain. And this, this is the way that you, you start to find that your life changes, you know, the kind of choices you make, the kind of life you lives, you live, not being some, some somebody else saying you should this and you should that, but you just feel, yeah, this, this works, this is, this is in harmony with my goals and my aspirations, and this is not. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Okay. Anyone else have an experience in your daily life of trying to find, make a little space to be mindful? Um, 
apart from a meditation with you, which obviously would be beneficial, like what what uh, uh, should we do? How should we approach the desire on uh, like towards various things on a, on a practical level, on a yeah. daily daily life? So the question is how to approach desire on a practical level in daily life. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the, my uh, simile that, or analogy here is a um, very simple one. You want to go to Bangkok. Uh, you say to me, I want to go to Bangkok. Um, would it be correct for me to take the road through Saratbury? I would say immediately, yes, that's the way to Bangkok. But then you say, I'd just like to go for a drive, um, just drive and see a bit of Thailand. Would it be correct to go through Saratbury? I can't answer you in the same way anymore. There's no correct answer. Yeah, you would just want to go for a drive. Okay, so you could go this way or that way, wherever. You said, whatever, you're just going for a drive. So, so the point being that these kinds of value judgments, you know, what's the correct or incorrect way, they only have a meaning when you have a goal. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, well, what do I want to develop in my life? You know, what, what, are, my, what are my aspirations? So if your aspiration is to find some peace of mind, then certain kinds of desire uh, are not going to work with that. They're just going to uh, really stir you up. Um, but if you're, you're, um, you know, your aspiration is sort of um, maximum amounts of excitement on my, in my daily life, then certain kinds of desire would be, you know, would work. So it, it always has to be related to, to, you know, what you really want to aspire to in your life. Yeah. And then number one is observe. Always observe what works, what happens when you act like this, when you follow this path, what happens, how do you feel afterwards? What are the long-term, short-term effects on physical, mental health, effects on relationships, effects on people? So more than anything else, I think the Buddhist path is one of observing. And because when you observe for yourself, it's not like something in a book. You know, you say, yeah, I don't know about other people, but when I do this, it makes me feel terrible. You know, when I do this, it really feels, my mind feels bright and calm and good. And, and uh, I don't know what other people say. I just know for me this works. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, those. I just like share this um, story. I, uh, my teacher used to tell about this man who goes fishing. He's a poor person, he needs some fish to um, feed his family. He goes out on the, in the pond, he's fishing all day, doesn't get a single fish. And comes home and uh, he's walking home and he meets a friend on a path uh, and his friend says, you look pretty miserable. So I said, I've been t- all day I've been out there working so hard to, to get some fish for, for a family meal. And uh, his friend says, don't you know there's no fish in that pond? You know? so, the, so what's, you know, what's his mistake there? You know, the mistake is you know, he's asking the wrong question. His question is, you know, how can I get fish out of this pond? Uh, when the first question he should have asked, which he, you know, he jumped over, was, are there any fish in this pond? So we, we spend so much time you know, answering the wrong questions. You know, instead of saying, what are the questions I should be asking myself in life? You know, what are the really basic questions, like long-term questions? Yeah. Mm.
Okay, uh, Dan? Yeah, uh, save yet, sorry. Um, doesn't it seem paradoxical to you that uh, um, mindfulness could lead eventually to uh, Total unconditioning. Because I would characterize the state of total unconditioning as being one of mindfulness. Uh, well, I think it's it's more a paradox of language than of experience. Um, the uh, my, mindfulness is one element of the Eightfold Path. It's not in itself enough um, for realization of the unconditioned. But, um, of course, you know, um, apart from arahants, uh, nobody knows what the unconditioned is like, so it's just speculation. Um, so, you know, this, and I'm not an arahant, so I'm not um, qualified to, uh, to answer that question, you know, unconditionally. Um, <laughs> but it's I think it's more it's more a matter of terminology and, and language um, than anything else and, um, and and the answer to this kind of question is you, you know you just do it and see what happens and it, uh, but in a sense of you know the the, the connection between immediate connection between mindfulness and unconditioned is the sense that um, when, when there's an impact, something, somebody does something, somebody says something, something happens, which the unmindful uh, person reacts instinctively, automatically, um, whereas the, uh, the mindful person um, doesn't, that there's a space there. Um, so, so let's say someone treats another person with contempt. It's probably the most difficult thing to handle, uh, out-and-out contempt. And then usually there's an immediate emotional response to someone treating you with contempt. Um, but uh, so we can say very obviously that that mental state, that reaction conditioned by the impact. Whereas a mindful person... Um, there's a stillness there, and there's not that reaction, but there's a there's a response. Um, so there's a there's a sense of an inner freedom and a quality of wisdom which is conditioned by mindfulness, rather than the reaction, emotional, physical reaction conditioned by the um, the the speech or the action of the person. So that, that would be how I'd, I would understand, like unconditioned in uh, like everyday life, as a first step towards sort of ultimate unconditioned nature.
without sort of getting caught up in trying to find something that's very important. Maybe you can repeat the question for. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I just you know feel that generally your life in the world is just you know like it's like a a play, drama, you know, and you just play your part. You know, like if you you play Hamlet, you know, you you try and play it as best you can, or Olivia, or whoever you are. But uh, you know, there's one part of you know I'm not really Hamlet, and but uh, you know, you if an actor was to to stand up on the stage to be, on, I'm not really Hamlet, you know. Just, you know, it's just you don't have to tell everybody that because everybody's, you know. And, um, I, I think it's just part of it, isn't it? You know, just um, uh, the, the Buddha at one point said, you know, we live in this world of conventions, and being free of conventions doesn't mean that you flout conventions. You know, you just respect them because that's the way the world works. But you, the convention is just a convention, and. And so, you know, just uh, short, fun. Yeah, exactly, yes. Yeah, but the point is, you know, enjoy that, you know. Don't, uh, you know, don't feel uncomfortable about it. No, uh, I mean, and and the fact that that you don't take all those, you know, in fact, although you're not expressing it, articulating it to people, people just feel good around you when you're like that. You know, people who are caught up with those things. So it's actually, a, you know, a form of giving to people around you. And, uh. Don't we have the opposite problem that we're supposed to be doing nothing, but actually we're getting interested in all kinds of little things? That <laughs> that's, that's, that's more common, isn't it? Yes. That's what, they're busy doing nothing, working the whole day through. <laughs> <laughs>